After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people... Hello, I'm Ricky Gervais. I'm Celeste Barber. Some people call me Beyonce. I'm Russell Brand. ...and asked them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the same chords now as I did when I was 14. From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. For the week of March 19th, 2020, coronavirus continues to grip the nation. Joe Biden secures a near certain grip on the Democratic nomination, and the rest of us are just trying to come to grips with a new normal stuck inside and cut off. Politicon self-quarantined, too, so we're podcasting from Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and Raleigh, North Carolina, wondering not only how we're going to make it through the next few weeks, but also how the heck are we going to get along? Hey, I'm Clay Aiken, and we are like pretty much everybody else in the world right now, doing things a little bit differently this week. We don't have a live audience this week for obvious reasons. I'm here at home in North Carolina myself, but I'm still joined by what is probably the best panel you're going to find on any political podcast, because even through our social distancing now, we're the only show that's able to pull in guests from all corners of the political map. And unlike other shows here on How the Heck, you get to ask the questions, the listeners. Um, We normally do have a live audience. But even when we don't, you can submit those questions online through Twitter or Instagram at Politicon, or you can email podcast at Politicon.com. And we're going to get to some of those submitted questions this week in just a second, like always. Uh, but first, let me introduce us, uh, our, our panel. We're very lucky, as always, to have some killer guests, former White House Senior Director and State Department Spokesperson, Nayara Huck, is with us. Breitbart Senior Editor-at-Large, Joel Pollack, comedian, author, and the original king of the podcast himself, Adam Carolla, and U.S. House Representative for California's 33rd District, Congressman Ted Lieu is with us. Thank you guys all for being here in such interesting circumstances with us this week. I guess I uh, want to start r- right right away and, and try to answer the very first question of our that we try to answer here on this podcast. How the heck are we going to lo- get along? Is coronavirus how we're all going to get along? Adam? I I think it's helping, you know? I mean, I live in California, and Gavin Newsom is talking to Trump, and Trump is talking to Gavin Newsom, and that's a first in my lifetime, or at least in the last three and a half years. So, And I I think there's a communal sense where everyone realizes that uh, there's things that transcend politics, and at the end of the day, everyone wants the same thing. They want their family to be safe. They want their communities to be healthy. They want old people to eat and not have to be on ventilators. And I think it, I think just as it was reaching a sort of fever pitch of hatred, maybe we'll look back at this as a sort of calming, huggy-bookie of uh, common ground before we get back to duking it out 
when the election comes up, of course. Is that the tone in D.C., Congressman Lou? Uh, in the last two days, uh, I wrote two letters to Vice President Pence, and both letters started out with the same two words, which were thank you. Uh, so I do think there's a recognition that the coronavirus is unlike anything any of us have ever experienced. Uh, it is a worldwide pandemic. It is growing exponentially in America, and we have to work together to try to stop the spread of this virus. And I've been in multiple conference calls now working on a stimulus package that hopefully Congress can pass on a bipartisan basis soon. Uh, Nayara, is is that the sense you're getting to? You're in D.C., so you're around a lot of folks. Is is there a, is there a coming together of people from both sides to try to make sure this works, or is there still controversy over the stimulus stimulus package that's being discussed? So I think it's somewhere in between. Uh, in that, at the communal level, certainly people really do feel connected to each other in a way that we didn't before. Right? People are checking in on neighbors. Uh, we're all sharing information and figuring out how do we get through this as a community. But I think it's really revealed the deep fractures that we've had for a long time, right? There has been a a long campaign um, by this administration to talk uh, about how government is terrible. You can't trust the news. Everything is a hoax. You know, the administrative state is a terrible thing. And we are now in a situation where we need the administrative state to step in and make sure that uh, if we have a vaccine that is readily available uh, to make sure that there are enough hospital beds and resources for everybody, or even if an and if an antiviral drug becomes available, that we're not going to be price gouged as a result of it. So th- there's many things that we're realizing government can do. That's part of why we pay taxes. And I think now everyone is feeling the impact of it. Whereas even in the last year or so, people who were complaining about Donald Trump um, were still potentially, you know, remote from it. And by that, I mean, the kids in cages has been a rallying cry for liberals. But I don't actually know anybody directly whose child has been taken away from them at the border. Uh, So this has gotten very, very deeply personal. I think people will be reacting to where it's government in that very personal way. Joel, is this is this a moment where big government is a good thing? Well, I think it's a moment where you're seeing a lot of leadership from government, but also from the private sector. When we need to mass produce testing kits, it has to be done in the private sector. When we need a vaccine or we need to investigate pharmaceuticals that could be applied from one use to another, there's some indication that there's some hope that coronavirus could be treated with drugs that are used for other things. We look to the private sector to do that. Now, they work with are National Institutes of Health. So there's a public-private partnership going on. But a lot of cities are also enlisting private entrepreneurs to make sure that vital services are happening, to make sure the supply chains are working. The truckers are out there making sure groceries get to the grocery stores and the convenience stores. And those folks are staying open late. And they're interacting with everybody in a neighborhood, taking that extra bit of risk. So I think you're seeing government do what government is supposed to do. I think even from a conservative perspective, the uh, conservative economist, uh, F.A. Hayek, who is something of a leader, a thought leader still for many conservatives today, said that in extreme emergencies, obviously people turn to government. That's the purpose of living in a commonwealth. And I think that conservatives are starting to come out with some ideas that on the left might have been Uh, much more common in the past, but are now being pushed by people like Tom Cotton, who's talking about emergency payments of $1,000 to 
American households to make sure there's enough cash in the economy. And that's not redistribution. It's not how conservatives are viewing it. Conservatives are viewing it as government stepping in, in many ways, to compensate for a crisis that's being uh, managed by government. Government's telling you you have to close your business, so government's going to help you. And I don't think that interferes with conservative principles. I think you're seeing the best uh, really from the conservative movement, but also from from liberals. Uh, you're seeing government and the private sector working together. And, and on that note, I also want to thank Ted Lieu, who's my congressman. Uh, we've had a lot of Twitter fights over the years, but I know, <laughs> that, I know that he's doing his best. And I'd like to see more of this in normal times. I think we'd like our government to work a little bit better, people that work across the aisle. But definitely uh, in the conservative media universe, there's a greater appetite now for stories about people coming through and helping one another. And that's not incompatible with the idea of limited government and more freedom. Adam, do we have to have a tragedy for people to get along? I mean, everybody here is getting along so nicely and people, and even Joel started talking about how, uh, you know, some of the more, some of the ideas that liberals have championed for a while are now starting to even be embraced in part um, for this moment by conservatives. We got a question by email from Joanne in Evanston, Illinois says, should we be surprised Trump is taking an idea from Andrew Yang um, and in contact with his team? Uh, You know, Donald Trump, Adam, we both know him at least in the same way a little bit. Um, uh, is, Is it surprising to you that some of these slightly more progressive ideas may be coming to the forefront with this president now? Um, I, you know, I, I guess, um, it's, it's a little bit of a wartime situation now. So I guess Trump is going to some ideas that you wouldn't normally do in times of peace. Uh, it doesn't make them bad ideas though. It may turn out to be a good idea. I, I've, I've spoke to Andrew Yang about this, uh, on my podcast and, and I thought he had a lot of really interesting ideas, which is, you know, when people talk about this universal income thing and it sounds like it's just the government handing out money, that sounds bad to a lot of conservatives. But when you talk about uh, tech industries that are already profiting off of your persona, essentially off of your information, and you're not being compensated for that, and why shouldn't they pay for your info that they're profiting off of, then ideas like that that sound a little outlandish actually make good sense. So um, I'm not surprised that Trump is trying anything Trump can try. I'm I'm sure he'll give himself credit for it when the dust settles and probably not Andrew Yang. And uh, yeah, I hope that these things are sort of like we're like a family and the family bickers and quarrels like brothers and sisters do. And then Nana dies and you kind of come together to funeral. So maybe this is that. So there's, well, that's a pretty good metaphor, at least for my family. I want I, Congressman Lou, I, we're getting along so well, and I don't want to make people argue because, God forbid, we ruin this this collegial mood here. But but Mark from Boise, who I was going to ask his question a second ago, he said, it looks like we're getting another stimulus. How should it be different this time? There is some still uh, some disagreement about what this stimulus should look like, who it should serve, how it should serve, whether it should be direct money directly to uh, Americans, whether it should be money to small business. What, what are the things that are holding, um, that are still being discussed right now, especially in phase two and phase three of the stimulus package? And how is it going to look different than what we've seen in the past? Uh, thank you, Clay. And also thank you, Joel, for your kind words. And you're absolutely right. 
we need the private sector uh, engage as well. It's not only a whole government approach. It's got to be a whole of society approach to deal with this uh, pandemic. We've already passed uh, $8.3 billion uh, in Congress that Donald Trump signed uh, to help develop a vaccine uh, and to help with small business loans and uh, some other issues. And then the U.S. Senate just today passed a second bill that the House had passed last week uh, that's going to uh, provide some additional assistance for testing and also make sure that uh, people who are in small, medium-sized businesses who uh, have to take emergency leave because their kids are now home from school because the school got shut down or because they got sick uh, can get paid. And we're now looking at a, a third package to help Americans who have been uh, directly impacted by this virus because they no longer have a job to go to. Uh, and it's uh, important to understand the scale of what we're talking about. Uh, this is not like 9-11 or the 2008 financial uh, crisis in the U.S. Uh, I think Donald Trump said it right when he sort of described this as a war. Uh, we're, we're essentially at a war with this hidden enemy, this virus, and it's affecting the entire world. And it's going to slow down economies across the world and in the U.S. for a very long time, and not just a few weeks. We're talking about uh, potentially many months uh, to perhaps uh, a year or more until we can get a vaccine or other drug therapy to stop the spread of coronavirus. Uh, I encourage everyone to read the Imperial College study, which uh, reportedly was one of the studies the White House had read uh, that caused them to, to develop their guidelines of going to maximum social distancing. And what it showed is, first of all, social distancing works but then the problem is once you start lifting it, the virus is going to come back because there's no immunity. It's a new virus. So essentially, you have to either keep it in place or you have to let it come back and then risk uh, a lot more people dying. So that's just a very stark choice we face. And if we're going to keep it in place, then we have to have government sustain all these millions of Americans uh, who can no longer work or have been severely impacted. Is there a point now where, where people just stop paying attention? They're, they're panicked now? I mean, one of the questions here from Trevor, um, I think he's in Austin, Texas. It says Austin. I'm assume that's Texas. He says, should we trust the media on COVID-19? Um, uh, are we in a place where we are confident, you, Naira, or anybody chime in, that we're confident that, that the media is presenting this in the most straightforward and, and honest way and that no one in two weeks' time is going to simply get bored of this story and decide that they're done with social distancing and go out? Well, I think there's two parts to that. There's um, the role of the media right now, more important than ever, because that's how we're all going to get information. So whether it's radio or television or what we see digitally. Now, the challenge to that is that not all media is straight news. There's a heavy amount of opinion. And up until about a week ago, a major network in the country was still calling this a hoax. So I don't necessarily blame all of these young folks from college who are still hanging out in spring break in Florida, even though that state has a significant elder population. So that's part of the challenge, again, when you've had leadership in this country, including from the media, that has consistently talked about conspiracy theories, uh, denigrating the deep state that's actually in general been promoting an anti-science narrative. We now have pitted uh, Dr. Fauci of NIH against this perception that science is not accurate, 
uh, when really all we're relying on is the science that's coming out right now and the data that we have from other countries. Uh, the idea that we're still stuck in whether or not this is going to be called a foreign virus when once again, we are learning lessons from the rest of the world of what we can do to protect ourselves. So it's not just a coming together that needs to happen in the United States. It's globally, right? This virus is not going to know any borders. And those borders are not just international, it's the borders between states. Um, so I hope this does lead to a renaissance of people really digging in and trying to understand how science and technology work, um, the basics of what, you know, viruses and chemistry and how uh, communities are knit together, that would be helpful. But I do think that that has been developing, this, this dichotomy has been developing for so long that we are ultimately going to suffer for it. And the response is going to be what we're seeing in places like San Francisco, where now there are uh, shelter-in-place orders, right? And this is what Italy did at a national scale to try I want to let Joel respond to this. Sorry, I just want to let Joel respond to the to the discussion about the, the, the way the media was portraying this earlier. Joel? So I think when we look back at this time, we're going to see that the media created a vulnerability in our society to precisely this kind of threat, because you have a dominant story that's been out there for three, four years that the president colluded with Russia to steal the election, more or less. I mean, some variation on that. And that turned out to be substantially untrue. You can take one side or the other of the impeachment argument. I'm not here to relitigate that, but I'm just saying that for many Americans who simply made a choice on November 8th, 2016, they've watched their choice being described as some sort of foreign conspiracy. And that has contributed to a level of mistrust of the media that I think made people distrustful of information they were receiving. But does that explain yeah. really why why some of the, I, I assume Nair is talking about Fox, does that explain why Fox would have led with this is a hoax? I mean, I, I, I'm not going to disagree well, with you that they there's a distrust I, mean, I, I, media. I can't, I can't, I'm, I don't work for Fox in some ways, you know, we compete with them. So I'm not defending everything they do. I will say that there were anchors and reporters on Fox who were on top of the story very early. And if you think back to where we were at the time, if all of us could have January and February back, I think we would. I think if you think back to that time, at the time when our government could have been taking more drastic action, not only were politicians focused on impeachment primarily, but our media were simply looking in a different direction. And that's not a Fox problem, and it's not even an MSNBC problem. We have a problem where we have become so heedless of what the purpose of media, at least in political coverage, ought to be, that we actually made ourselves vulnerable to a threat that requires trust. It's not just accurate information, but it's also trust. And that's why I think we are where we are. And I think you have to look at it from the perspective, perhaps, of the audience that some of the opinion anchors at Fox have a rapport with. They they just had the best jobs report in history. Many have gone back to work, let's say, I'm speaking, of course, in a kind of archetypal way, but maybe, you know, got a job at the manufacturing plant, things are looking good, the economy's finally looking great, and all of a sudden it gets taken away. And the well, suspicion, listen, but, the suspicion but, but, let me finish this thought, the suspicion among many 
in the conservative audience was that this was being done to bring down the president because it was almost made to order for an election year. Now that that is not true, right? But that's how people and, I, and felt. that also that and certainly go ahead, Nira. Yeah, that doesn't excuse, though, on the government side, the lack of preparedness. One of the final things that we did in leaving the Obama administration were several tabletop exercises of how you deal with a variety of crises. Literally, it was 30 Trump transition people who were going to the administration sitting down, and one of the exercises was how do you deal with, at a national scale, a respiratory virus like SARS that's going to, you know, not affect just the United States, but be a global pandemic, and walk them through the variety of tools that government has to uh, to help people. And none of that, first of all, none of those people are there anymore. Uh, the NSC office for global pandemic response was canceled by the president. Uh, you've had NIH and all sorts of scientists complain about the fact of the lack of the coordinating body. The president's son-in-law apparently is in charge of this response. And as a result of that, media aside, you have had lack of preparedness from our own government for dealing with this because this government and this administration has denigrated any type of expertise, including science, especially science, and has failed, literally failed to use the government resources to help people. One of the first things out of the administration's policies for stimulus was let's help hotels, let's help cruise lines. The first instinct was not actually let's help the truck driver who is trying to make everything work. And it wasn't let's help our healthcare workers who no longer have childcare at home because schools are closed. So the priorities are also set by the administration, which the media can then only follow. Adam, 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 play Judge Judy for me for a second. Do both of them have a point or does one have a stronger point? I mean, who, every, we're all, everybody's just trying to blame the other. Is, is, is there either, is one side more at fault or are they both just equally okay. full of shit? Well, um, I think what Joel is expressing is, uh, when you're of a more conservative persuasion, you voted for Trump, you feel like the news media was taking him down or attempting to take him down over the last three years plus. And when this thing comes around, everyone who watches Fox goes, oh, here we go again. Here's the next thing. So I think the news media, in a way, cried wolf a little too often and got people thinking this is the next wolf, and it turned out this was actually a wolf. This wasn't. But whose responsibility wolf. is wasn't. it to determine whether the wolf is actually real or not? Well, I think everybody needs to understand that since the news became profitable, that there aren't going to be any more fours and fives. Everything's going to be nines and tens on both sides. And so anybody watching the news, whether it's Fox or MSNBC, has to watch it with that in mind. I don't think there's any more manslaughter anymore. It's all murder one. There's no more degrees anymore. It's all swing. You know, the pendulum just swings all the way one way or all the way to the right or all the way to the left. So I think whatever your political persuasions are, watch the news with a sort of skeptical eyebrow raised because they're in the they're in business now of not sharing exactly what happened, but keeping viewership and working off of fear, both sides, and making money. So everyone has to watch news with a sort of skeptical eyebrow in the air. 
Congressman, I want to let you weigh in too a little bit on what both of them just said. Is there any is there any regret or any hindsight 2020 vision now that Congress did not have its finger on the pulse of this virus in January and February as much as maybe some congressmen and senators might have wished you did? So I think there's ample time after this crisis to look at uh, you know what Fox News did or what the administration did or what Congress did, but we are where we are right now, and I think it's very important we all work together to try to mitigate the spread of this virus. And you sort of led off your question with saying, in two weeks, you know, what are people going to do? And I still want people to understand how this virus spreads. Now, it it grows exponentially. And the way it works is because it's exponential growth, you don't actually see very much for quite a while. So, for example, uh, at the beginning of March, we only had about 70 cases in all of the United States. As of today, we have over 8,000. And by the end of this month, if none of this social distancing works, we'll have over 100,000 cases in the U.S. And then a few months, it just just goes up to millions. Uh, So people will rapidly see that, oh, they have a friend who has it or a friend of a friend who has it or their grandma has it. And that's why I think people will likely continue to follow uh, the restrictions that government has put out because the spread is going to get worse for quite a while before it starts to level off if our social distancing works. And I think it's just important now to to just focus on the future and try to get everyone to engage in social distancing, because that's the best thing we can do until we get either a drug therapy or, or a vaccine. So so what, Congressman, is next? What what do you think that we should be doing? Are there, th- are there other countries we should be looking at? Are there other things that you would like to see being done, right. not in terms of stimulus, but in terms of right. controlling the spread that right. are not being done? Yeah. That's a great question. So the goal is to not look like Italy and look like South Korea. In Italy, they reported 475 people died in one day uh, yesterday. That's just a shocking number. And that was preceded by a day that had over 300 deaths in 24 hours. So we're seeing large numbers of people dying in Italy. And then you contrast it with South Korea, uh, which has been able to limit the number of new cases that they're getting and really stem the number of deaths. And that's why we're at all levels of government, urging people to stay home, uh, to work from home uh, if they can, instead of uh, going to work, if they can uh, just make sure they're uh, doing basic hygiene, washing their hands for 20 seconds with soap and water, uh, coughing under their elbow, staying away from sick people. Um, if we could do that, then then hopefully we'll look more like South Korea in two weeks instead of like Italy. And... and um Sophia from uh, New York City asks what I think uh, probably everyone is asking. How does this end? How how much longer are we inside, Congressman? So I've been trying to get people to reorientate their thinking of this crisis. Uh, this does not go away in a few weeks. It actually will get worse in a few weeks. Um, at some point, hopefully the cases will start leveling off. And what we're trying to do, uh, because the issue here is not how many people get sick. It's how many people get sick at once. And if too many people get sick at once, then you have 
hospitals get overwhelmed where they have to do what they do in Italy, which is triage and deciding which person gets a ventilator, which person does not, uh, which person essentially is going to end up dying. Uh, but if we can flatten this curve and sort of spread it out, the hospitals can then deal with the patients who are coming in. Because one of the problems with this virus is not only is the mortality rate uh, at least 10 times that of the flu currently, but 15 to 20% of people who contract it get so sick, they have to go to the hospital. That ends up being a shockingly high number if it all happens at once. And so we're trying to flatten the curve and make sure that we can do social distancing so people don't get all sick at once. But then the question is, well, how long do you have to keep this curve flattened? And depending on what you read, most scientists are saying you're going to have to keep it flattened for pretty long until we get either a vaccine or some sort of drug therapy. Uh, because once you go back to normal again, this virus simply restarts because no one has any immunity. Now, my suspicion is it could be regional. Uh, it may be that New York, for example, which has been hard hit, might have to keep people uh, restricted uh, and do social distancing for a, a long time, whereas maybe West Virginia doesn't have to do that. And and so we'll see what happens. But people need to think of this crisis in terms of months and, and perhaps many, many months. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly. And look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that. But I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. This Halloween, listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. Soundtracks available on Spotify or wherever you stream your music. But I mean, like, everybody's got a podcast these days. But what would I know? I'm Satan, for God's sakes. Don't even get me started. 13 Days of Halloween. A remote hotel. This, my friend, is Hawthorne Manor. The most unusual guests. They sound like someone you trust. Trick or treat! No, sweetie, don't touch it. Don't look at it. A tour guide that can't be trusted. Was it luck or fate that placed you here? We'll never know. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? I love you. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. Produced in three-dimensional binaural audio to place you right in the center of the story in ways you'll have to hear to believe. For full exposure, listen with headphones or AirPods. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk a little bit about um, politics, although it is, you know, it is certainly not in the news as much. Joe Biden uh, and what I think they're calling it Super Tuesday number two or Super Tuesday number three or whatever they're calling this uh, this week's election. Joe Biden had such a, a dominating lead in Florida and Illinois and Arizona. 
on Tuesday that it is he's amounted um, he's got enough delegates I think that it's an insurmountable lead. Um, how Carly from Honolulu? Ah, oh, listen to that. Carly from Honolulu asks, and I'll ask this to uh, Nayara: uh, How can Democrats campaign against Trump during COVID without looking like huge jerks? Um, so I'm going to double onto that. Does the does the race need to take a pause right now um, so that we can deal with this crisis, or is this something that we we Joe Biden should continue? Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders too is staying in the race. They should continue to campaign as if as if it were a normal year. Well, I certainly think that pausing on massive rallies, whether they be Trump rallies or Biden or Bernie rallies, is the smart thing to do. But there is something to be said for continuing in what is supposed to be, you know, our how we how we connect as civil, you know, as an American democracy. And the idea that any one crisis can suddenly eliminate an election, whether it be a primary or the general election, I think is very problematic. Uh, the I, I was in New York, you know, for 9-11 um, and there was certainly a conversation about what if you stop the election, you know, Giuliani wanted another term because it was a crisis and it came down to, you know, we can delay a little bit, but we still need to move on and, and practice who we are as Americans because this is so fundamental, right? The, the right to vote is so fundamental uh, to who we are and how we identify. Now, with that said, directly to the question of how to campaign against Trump. I think this is part of why the uh, anger and the the system is broken and let's change everything narrative that had helped Bernie advance this far uh, has collapsed in recent days. Uh, And certainly someone like Biden who has experience, who people feel like is, uh, you know, a a blast from the past and tradition and something they find familiar. I think people will be looking more towards that and having things that resemble normal, that resembles the world they used to know uh, the competency, right? They're looking for competency and not looking for this to be a moment of radical change because we're facing so much radical change on a deeply personal level right now. Adam, Stephanie in Homestead, Florida asked if we should, if it was right to have the primary under COVID conditions, should they have postponed those primaries in Florida and uh, Illinois and Arizona on Tuesday, or was it right to keep going with it? You know, I I don't know that I'm qualified to say 100% yay or nay. I, in general, like the idea of moving forward with as many things as we can safely move forward with. Um, so I'm. If you just ask me without um, any any given any real deep thought. If, if my answer is always just yes, I, I hope we can move forward with the things we can safely move forward with. I don't know if you can determine if it was safe or not, but in, in my head, I'd like us to do as many of the things we were able to do before the coronavirus uh, and do it safely. I would also add that one to me positive effect of the coronavirus is no audience for the debate. I think it's so much better in terms of being able to actually hear people's ideas and go back and forth. And it, and it also removes that, um, that very human instinct of having to sort of play to the crowd with things that may not be playing as well at home. So I, I, I hope we can move forward and never have an audience for these debates. It definitely changed the dynamic for sure. So Joel, does that, not just that, not just the lack of the ability to take, to have rallies, but, but just this whole coronavirus crisis, does it help President Trump's in his reelection or do you think it hurts? He's hurt. 
I think it's too early to say. I think if you were to look back at the last few months, he has one very good fact or argument and one troubling argument against him, which is the testing situation it may or may not be his fault, but the buck stops in the Oval Office. And so people will say that that was a weakness of our system. And they'll look at the positive, the argument in his favor, which is the travel ban, which was opposed by many Democrats, including Joe Biden, but which turns out to have at least bought us time and perhaps saved lives. But I don't know that we're going to be looking back to the beginning of this crisis by the time we get to November. You know, as Representative Lou said, people are focused on the solution and making sure that social distancing works. And meanwhile, you've got the medical professionals and the pharmaceutical industry and the researchers all working on solutions. So we're going to see how we come out of this. And I think in some ways, the presidential race is in a state of suspended animation. I would look at it as a 50-50 proposition. You've got Joe Biden, whose great strength is, I think, that people feel, rightly or wrongly, whatever, but they feel that he empathizes with them. He's had losses in his own life. And I think that he is able to connect to voters by talking about that. The downside for Joe Biden is simply his age. And you had Democrats raising that question as early as the September debate last year. And I think that's going to be a question for voters, especially when we're talking about stability. And I agree with the point that was made earlier that in a time like this, people are looking for stability. Is it more stable to stick with Trump or to go back to the status quo ante before Trump with a leader who may not be up to the job, maybe bringing in a very good team. I think you're hearing Democrats already talk about the team around Joe Biden. But uh, the other side of it is you've got a leader in Trump who gets a lot of things done, uh, but on the downside, a lot of people don't like the way he gets it done and the tone and so forth. So I, I think it's very hard to sort all that out right now. And we may be looking at a different set of questions in November. It's too early to tell. I do think that politics can go on, but it does have to change. I, I think the attack ads are coming down. I think we're going to see different themes emphasized in at least the weeks ahead. Congressman, I, I, we heard, Joel just said something which I think a lot of people would be somewhat surprised to have heard from someone who at Breitbart. He complimented the vice president, um, Biden on being empathetic. You know, I think that's something a lot of people have, have praised him for his uh, everyman ability to, to empathize and connect with people on the trail. Joel has complimented him or praised him in some way. I don't, don't want to put words in your mouth, Joel, but it sounded like that to me. What, what I want to ask you, Congressman, is are Democrats going to be able to do that for Trump if he deserves it at any point this year, if he has done something successful in an election year, do you think Democrats will be able to give credit if it's due? Uh, so I have complimented Donald Trump multiple times publicly on on social media. It's just that no one ever picks that up when I do it. Uh, so, for example, when Trump um, took out Baghdadi, I complimented him for doing that. Uh, when Donald Trump uh, at least tried to withdraw our troops from Afghanistan, I complimented him for doing that. Uh, so I think you just have to give credit where credit is due. And if Donald Trump does something right, then um, I'm fine with complimenting him. Uh, I do agree with Joe that I think it's too early to know about November. People right now 
uh, are not thinking about political campaigns in any way. They are scared. Uh, they want to know what's going to happen, uh, not just in the next few weeks, but next few months. Uh, the whole world has been turned upside down for many, many people. And I think what they're looking for is solutions. And I believe they want government at all levels to work together right now. Well, Congressman, I don't think you have a primary opponent. So, uh, but even if, but if you did, I think you'd luck out because I think every compliment you gave to President Trump cut out somehow in your microphone right then. So no one's going to be able to use it against you in a primary. (laughs) (laughs) You're safe there. Um, Nayra, (laughs) Nayra, let me ask you um, about uh, something that Joel also touched on. He he talked about the team um, that, that is being discussed around president or uh, vice president Biden. If he were to become president, Uh, obviously now that he he has likely secured the nomination. There's a lot of discussion about running mates. I imagine we'll continue to have that discussion with every panel in this show for the next few months until he has chosen one. What are your thoughts on what he needs to do? Um, is it more important for him in the running mate to appeal to the same sort of Midwestern voters that he already appeals to? Does he need to... Uh, he said he's going to pick a woman. Does he need to pick a... Uh, minority female as a running mate. What are your thoughts on on who he needs on his team? Well, I think there's two truisms to politics, whether it's wartime or just any old day. First is it's it's very difficult to run against uh, a sitting president who has a good economy. And unfortunately for Donald Trump, the good economy uh, and the market gains that had been made under his watch have all disappeared. So he has a, a vulnerability there um, that Democrats will in some shape or form at some point exploit uh, in the, on the campaign trail. And then the second is you, you look to create a team that's complementary and that brings in the people that you don't yourself as an individual. So um, Biden will win if he's able to turn out Democratic-based voters, which are above and beyond, number one, black women. Uh, He has a coalition of older black folks and uh, suburban um, white people. And uh, that was the Obama combination that people have been looking to replicate. Um, But also if he's able to bring in some of the uh, pieces of the Obama voters who went from Obama to Trump. Uh, And those are voters who Bernie appealed to in the whole, and that Trump himself appealed to with the same style of the system is broken, everything is terrible, um, nobody's fighting for you, but I will type rhetoric. And for lack of a better term, let's call that the more progressive side of the Democratic Party. So I think that's the combination that he will need in a vice president if he truly wants to unite every Democratic voter out there and some of the swing voters. I don't think that doubling down and appealing to the people who already disagree with you is a winning strategy for any candidate, right? You need to first and foremost get the enthusiasm and turn out from your base. Adam, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you who you prefer uh, over President Trump or, or Joe Biden, but I know you've said in the past that you consider yourself probably more Republican, maybe more libertarian. You think that's still still the case nowadays? Yeah, I'm, you know, the thoughts I have and have always expressed would probably be, at the time I was expressing them, considered very uh, democratic. I'm pretty libertarian. Democratic as well. I mean, always been kind of, you know, legalized pot and gay marriage and secure the border and see if you can lower taxes. Like maybe I'm all over the place with with this stuff. But I do feel like the Democratic Party has changed quite a bit 
since I was talking about this kind of stuff on my syndicated radio show in 1997, you know, and (laughs) well, I think anyone would, would agree with that notion. And so for me, uh, maybe it sounds convenient, but I don't feel like I've really changed much on many of my stances. I just feel like the Democrats or a wing of the Democrats have become much harder left. I, I always sort of make a distinction between leftism and liberalism. I think of myself as liberal. And I also think there's a lot of folks who are Republicans who think of themselves as liberal, but I don't think they think of themselves as, as left. And that's kind of the way I think of myself. I think of myself as liberal, but not left. Well, you sort of hit right on why I want to ask you this question, because you you seem to fit into the category, at least in my mind, and obviously we've known each other for a bit, but into my mind is sort of the type of Democrat that perhaps might have left the party in 2016 to vote for Trump instead of voting for Hillary Clinton. Again, I'm not going to make you ask you to... to tell who you voted for, but do you think that... But there's certainly been the argument from folks on the on the farther left edge of the Democratic Party, that Joe Biden would not be able to beat Donald Trump in the same way Hillary Clinton wasn't able to beat Donald Trump. Do you think that they have a point, or do you think that Joe Biden represents a different type of Democratic Party than, than Hillary Clinton did? Um, I think that when we're sort of, um, if I could just double back to the um, live debate versus the what we saw the last debate. But I'll use that as a metaphor, which is I think the Democrats may be doing themselves a disservice if they're just playing to the rabid 600 people that are in the auditorium, because those people have a much stronger feeling than the people at home watching TV. And I think Biden would do himself well by playing to the people who are home watching TV versus the people that were on their feet and screaming in the auditorium. If you sort of get that metaphor, I don't think most of America is for many of the ideas that would be hard left or a lot of the Bernie ideas uh, out there. But I do think there's a large group of of people in this nation that just want to sort of get back to business as usual. We've been a snow globe that's been inside a paint can shaker to Home Depot for the last three years. I think they just want the snow to settle and to like set it back up on the shelf and let's just get back to to the old normal. So I think Biden would be smart to play to those people rather than play to the people that were getting in, you know, screaming matches on Twitter. Congressman? I I believe Adam is correct that I think many Americans want to go back to a state of normalcy. Now, unfortunately, the coronavirus has made that a gazillion times harder now. And it's really what I think everyone should be focused on. I don't think people really want to think about political campaigns. And what people are looking for right now is something to calm them down, let them know that things are going to be okay, not just in the next few weeks, but also the the next few months. And I think anyone running a campaign right now has to be very careful and sensitive to whether they're doing any ads or or what they're saying. I think people really uh, don't want to deal with political campaigns at this moment. Nayara? 
Oh, I thought you had your hand up there. Okay, we can cut out. Sorry, call I your name. take myself off. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, I, I did I want to throw out an important factoid there here that 80% of Americans do not identify as partisan. So they will not say I'm a Democrat or Republican. Yet, when they go to the polls, they will end up voting essentially along party lines. So we like to have this perception of ourselves. We don't belong to those, you know, these weird parties that, that are all political and we're all independent thinkers, but we do end up being creatures of habit and signing up as part of a tribe when it comes to election day. I want to do a, um, a quick round robin uh, with a few unrelated questions, uh, unrelated to the, the campaign and unrelated to the coronavirus but some things that came in from from some of our folks through Instagram. Um, uh, MD Young ninety two ten. If there was a third party, what would its ideology platform be? Uh, Joel, any thoughts on that? <laughs> I think there is a third party in a way. I think that you had a party for a long time that wasn't represented in Washington who wanted to take another look at free trade agreements who wanted to secure the border and who had a sense that the first job of the national government is to take care of the nation. And that is the third party that Donald Trump tapped into in 2016. He's been pretty faithful to what he promised them he would do, or at least what he would try to do. Whether that will matter in November, I don't know. Even without coronavirus, the question in any election is, really about the future, not just about the past. So it's hard to know. I guess if I had to pick a fourth party, I would look at Silicon Valley. I'd look at the growing tribe of people, not just millennials, but especially among millennials, who are disconnected from politics or have been disconnected and are now, in a sense, in this crisis, thrust into leadership roles. These are innovators. These are people who are creative they suddenly have an audience at home looking for content, looking for how-to lessons on YouTube, looking for tips for taking care of kids, looking for driver delivery of all kinds of things, not just food, but necessities, things from the pharmacy, soap, shampoo, whatever. And these are the people who have suddenly been thrust into the center of our civic life. And we don't know where it's going to end up politically, but it is kind of exciting because I think a lot of new things are going to come out of this very difficult and in many ways sad time because, of course, a lot of people are struggling with life and death situations right now. But we're going to see a lot of innovation. It's kind of exciting to see where it goes. Uh, common ally. These, these Instagram handles, I think, are brilliant. Common ally asks, are younger generations more aligned on issues than Gen X and above? Um, Naira, you want to take a stab at that one? Um, so, yeah, so I, I'm technically a millennial, um, and uh, I'm looking at all the numbers that are coming out of the primaries and seeing that the generation after me is not turning up to vote, which is part of a broader pattern of young voters, like, you know, age 18 to 25, just not really showing up to vote. So I think there's uh, a challenge here um, in that, uh, how do you get people to actually think and believe that government and participating in your government is a way forward for change? And, and maybe maybe this pandemic is, is that thing. Um, each generation has had a thing that has motivated them to get engaged, right? Whether it's boomers and 
post-World War II, whether it's civil rights era, or even the, the 9-11, um, the war, this never-ending war scenario that my generation has faced. So I do hope that uh, even though younger folks have been talking about climate change, they didn't certainly didn't vote and turn out for the candidate who's made climate change a big part of his platform. Um, I do hope that that's one other good, one of the good things that comes out of this situation of communal coming together is that young people do feel connected to society and that they need to be engaged. Adam, we'll ask you this one from Spojoy. Spojoy says, name one political or social goal that the left and right can achieve if they work together. Uh, just off the top of my head, uh, I think education. I think um, I'm pro-voucher and school choice and charter schools. I, I think they work. I, I feel like we sh- we could certainly commission a study, and there have been. I mean, ult- ultimately, education is going to affect everything. So let's just start at kind of the root of what could be great or the root of what could be horrific in this country with, with education. And I don't think we should be arguing over education. I think we should just commission an independent study, figure out what techniques work the best, um, and, and, and deploy them. Uh, that for me is one of the things, um, I, I would like us to reach a consensus on. Okay, and then we'll, our last little round-robin question is for you, Congressman Lou. It's from My Horse Angel. <laughs> this, and My Horse Angel asks, does Ted Lou still plan on rooting for the Cleveland Browns this coming season? Uh, I do. You know, I, <laughs> I don't really want to be a Browns fan, but it was imprinted on me at a young age, and I can't help it. So we ask our guests to tell us about something that they have in the works or that they're working on or that we can listen to, watch, whatever right now. Um, and then we ask them to also plug something that that they've really loved and really kind of honed in on themselves. And we're going to call it Beat the Quarantine this this week and, and perhaps for several weeks to come because I think we're all sitting at home and we all um, are desperately looking for things to entertain us, to engage us, to challenge us, um, things to read, things to listen to, things to watch, things to do, things to cook, whatever. So we'll, um, we'll start with Nayara right now. Nayara, what, what do you want to, what are you using to, to get through the quarantine? Okay, so um, there's this great Twitter handle and Instagram uh, handle called at Cool Moms. And I am not only a cool mom, but I am a mom who's stuck at home with a toddler and um, trying to figure out how to stay sane, maybe get some work done, but also making sure that my child is entertained and educated. So I have found they have, they've just taken... Um, all sorts of resources, whether it's free online learning or classes or um, schedules, and just posted them online and collated them. So if you want like one place to go, if you're a parent, to figure out what to do with kids at home, you can check out at Cool Moms. And because I'm home and um, online all the time, I'd love to engage with any of our listeners. Um, I keep my DMs open and you know, it's nice to hear how people are thinking in other parts of the country, especially since I'm stuck in D.C. inside the Beltway. So feel free to hit me up at Nayaror, that's N-A-Y-Y-E-R-O-A-R on any of the social media platforms. Nice. Thank you. Joel, what about you? Well, if you would like to tune in to my new radio show, it's Sunday evenings, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m., Eastern Time or 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific Time on Sirius XM 125. It's Breitbart News Sunday. And this week we have an interview with Mark Cuban. He's the 
owner of the Dallas Mavericks and the entrepreneur from Shark Tank. And he's talking with us about how he's responded to the coronavirus outbreak. So that's just one example of the kind of guests we like to have. We like to look forward. It's not so much a weekend review, but looking ahead to the week that is to come. So that's a lot of fun. And this is not a diversion I'm partaking of in particular, but I've been very interested in how businesses are coping with the outbreak. And I've been looking for stories about different parts of the economy. And I have a friend who's involved in the online dating world in that particular niche of the tech sector. And I assumed that this was going to be very bad for apps that allow people to just meet at random because people are going to be afraid of passing along an infection or getting an infection. And it actually turns out the online dating platforms expect to do very, very well. It's just that they're going to change what they do. They're going to offer a path to more committed relationships because people are going to have to get to know each other before they simply meet one another. So that's going to be very interesting. So if you're single and you're stuck in quarantine, do not despair. There's an app for that. And if it didn't on your phone already, it will be soon. That's fascinating because you know what? I've used them before and I'm always game for a good excuse to not have to meet somebody in person. So uh, the quarantine's working well for me, but that's really fascinating that people are signing up um, uh, for things like that. So, so Joel, you're kind of, you're kind of pitching OkCupid and all that stuff, but, but not by name. I got it. So, okay. That's pretty, that's an interesting. uh, Well, I can, I can plug my, my friend of mine is involved in in a site called crucialhabits.com crucialhabits.com if you want a specific site but all, all of these sites expect to do very well as people can't meet in bars or restaurants or movie theaters anymore they're expecting people to meet online and then perhaps go for a nice walk outside at a safe distance of <laughs> <laughs> congressman you are uh doing your reserve duty this weekend is that this week is that right with the air force reserve uh, the the Air Force actually sent a message out asking us to work from home. Uh, oh, okay. So I've actually been Fair. reading about what Congress did after 9-11, as well as after the 2008 financial crash. Uh, we're working on this uh, stimulus package. Now, I do recommend for people who are, are at home and have Amazon Prime, they may want to watch uh, the series known as The Expanse. I'm a science fiction uh, nerd, uh, but it's more than just science fiction. It's actually, I think, a, quite a good show, and I uh, recommend people watch that if they uh, have some time. Okay, very nice. Adam, what about you? I've heard you have a well, podcast. Is that right? Yeah, I'll first I'll <laughs> plug uh, some music. I, I don't play an instrument, but the, there's a band out there, and they've been out there for a long time called the Jayhawks, and they're just an excellent band that many people haven't heard. And I think in this time of stress and need, putting those earbuds in and listening to some really good music while you're shadow boxing or skipping your rope or exercising, uh, it's real important. So um, I'll plug uh, my friends in the band, uh, the Jayhawks. Um, If you have Netflix, I have three docs that are currently on Netflix. I have uh, Uppity about the first black driver at the Indianapolis 500. Shelby American about Shelby, Carol Shelby, and uh, the 24-hour war, which is the real story of Ford v. Ferrari. They're all up on Netflix right now. And if you go to adamcorolla.com, I do a daily podcast. So my podcast is going on every day throughout this uh, corona quarantine. And now where are you doing it? Are you doing it from your studio in in 
Burbank in yeah, LA? Yeah, I, 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 I go. I go into my studio, but there's not, you know, if there's no live audience, it's a skeleton crew. And I just enjoy the lack of traffic as I drive into Glendale, California. There's a couple people in the 5,000 square foot building. So everyone's kind of staying away from each other. And I've got to give you I got to give you a little crap for this because I've been on your show. It's incredible. I had a great time. The studio is really impressive, all kind of high tech, but you're doing this from home today. Is that right? I'm at Are home you talking to us today. from home? You're at home now. Yes. You're at home now. And and Adam's got the Guinness Book of World Records for the the most downloaded podcast. It's the probably the highest downloaded podcast in history still as we as we speak daily. And yet somehow, Adam, I don't think I heard that you had trouble figuring out how to get your mic to work on your computer at home. So I, I just found that incredibly ironic. <laughs> the biggest <laughs> podcaster in the country, but but when you're out of that studio, hmm. Technology. Yeah, I don't. I, I am. I am not a tech guy. I'm a, a builder. I'm a rancher. You know. You know my background, Clay. And I just yes. somehow stumbled into this industry. Well, we're glad you got your mic working. We're glad everybody did as well. I love this little segment um, uh, at the end of the show because I get my list of things that I can do in the quarantine myself for the week. So I'm going to check out The Expanse, listen to the Jayhawks, be texting with uh, Naira on uh, Instagram, and while I'm. Uh, while I'm on crucial habits for dating, I guess. Maybe maybe that'll work for me. God knows nothing else has. Um, and I will plug this show, uh, obviously. Uh, we'll be back next week. If you have, we won't have a live audience again next week. We're all following the CDC recommendations, of course. We'll be back next week. If you want to submit questions to our panel, you can go on to uh, politicon.com uh, on the website, and you can... Uh, submit questions through that. You can do it through Twitter or Instagram at Politicon, or you can email podcast at Politicon.com, and we will uh, make sure that we get to those questions with our panel next week. Um, we'll be back then. Uh, a big thank you to Adam Carolla, Congressman Ted Lieu, uh, Nayara Huck, and Joel Pollack for this week, and we'll be back next week to see if we can figure out how the heck are we going to get along. See you then. It's time for our politicians to answer to the people, and that means you. So send at Politicon your questions, and join me and our panel weekly for Politicon's hit podcast, How the Heck Are We Gonna Get Along? I'm host Clay Aiken, and each week I'll put your questions to a new batch of your favorite comics, politicians, and pundits. Do they have what it takes to get us to 2021? Find out Thursdays with new episodes. Listen to Politicon's How the Heck Are We Gonna Get Along on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thirteen days of Halloween. A remote hotel, the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? They sound like someone you trust. I know you can hear me. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. 
Look, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on.